Tuesday, July 16th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Christelle joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Dave Meyer, and from Fool.com, Isaac Pino. Happy Tuesday, gents. Good Happy Tuesday, Tuesday to you, Good too. Good to see you. Uh, we've got a couple of Dow stocks reporting earnings this week, so we will dig into that. Uh, and a pretty phenomenal story um, uh, about Sears, a company we haven't talked about in a while. We haven't really had cause to, and now we do have cause to. <laughs> uh, so we will get to the amazing story of what's going on behind the scenes at Sears. Let's start with Coca-Cola, though. Uh, second quarter profit fell 4%. Isaac, they had weak volume growth, uh, dare I say anemic volume growth. I think it was just 1% or so. And uh, shares down a little bit this morning. And I say this as someone who is a longtime shareholder and is generally quite satisfied with the company. Not once in all the years I have owned this stock have I ever heard, even when they've had a bad quarter, I have never heard the company until now blame the weather. But <laughs> it's it, a new era. Is, yeah, apparently it's a brand new day. Is that legitimate to say, look, there's a lot of wet weather? I get extreme weather, like there have been some monsoons around the world, and I know that most of the business that Coca Cola does is outside America, but I feel like if you're reaching for the weather, you better have a really – it better be really extreme. What do you think? It's true. The, the weather might be doing one thing in America, but this company is so international that are we seeing unseasonable weather all over the world at any given time? Like that's kind of what they pointed out. And how related is that to your consumption of coal? I know it's a, a big part of the product is it, it cools you down when the weather's hot. So the, the seasonal heat is a good thing for Coke usually. But at the same time, you're bringing in weather into the mix. You're bringing into gasoline prices, the CEFO commented on. You're bringing in the pay- payroll tax and how that's affecting low-end consumers. And these are all, you know, how much are they really affecting people's consumption of cola? And if they are, that seems like a concern if your product is, isn't, you know, something that consumers actually need. Well, and Dave, we're going to see Pepsi report earn in relatively short order, and presumably Pepsi is dealing with exactly <laughs> exact same thing. the exact same weather, <laughs> the exact same price of gas that Coca-Cola is. We'll find out if they are. If they, if maybe they maybe they were dealing with different weather. <laughs> That'd be a story. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I mean, Coca-Cola has really, over the last few years, uh, done a better job of outmaneuvering Pepsi in terms of distribution and and logistics and all that sort of thing. So I, you know, all kidding aside, it, it has been a good run. But still, all kidding aside, all of those things are going to affect Pepsi. So I guess I guess we will know even more once they report. But what do you think of Coca Cola's quarter? Yeah, it, it is a you know it is a little strange to see volumes down. That is one of the things the company really prides itself on is is really getting those volumes up. Even if it's incrementally uh, very small, um, they they they've tended to do that for a long time. So I got to imagine there's a little bit. I won't say panic. That's that's well, I just did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a little bit of concern right now in in uh, in Coca Cola HQ, um, especially when you when you read the uh, the the CFO said uh, we didn't expect the world to have a bump and the whole industry slowed down. The whole industry. Yeah. Wow, I mean that's a pr- that's another pretty big statement, um, which can be refuted by looking at SodaStream's <laughs> growth. Um, yeah, they they've they're selling more in-house machines. I don't know. Are we also going to see disruptive technology as a ne- as a, as an excuse as well? It's entirely possible. It's possible. <laughs> um, quick uh, sidebar question on SodaStream: What percentage of their business 
is outside the United States because uh, one of the things that, uh, and I don't know why this is continuing to get a headline here in the United States, but part of the story in, in the media today about Coca-Cola is consumption of soda in the United States can, is declining. But mm-hmm. frankly, that's a trend that has been going on for, I think, just north of a decade or so. So that that's not really... Uh, I think if you're a Coca-Cola shareholder or a Pepsi shareholder, I don't think that that's news to you. Uh, but when you look at a company like SodaStream, to what extent is that negatively impacting their business? Well, so does, more of SodaStream's revenue comes from outside the United okay. States. So, um, in, in fact... The, Just like with Coca-Cola. The, yes. In fact, the emerging market for SodaStream is the United States. They're just starting to really penetrate uh, heavily there. Uh, Isaac, when you look at shares of Coca-Cola sort of getting knocked down a, a, a couple of percentage points this morning, uh, do, you, do you look at something like that as a buying opportunity? Because I look at Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola as one of those companies that's, you know, it's not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, uh, uh, maybe that, that doesn't necessarily mean it is a market-beating stock 10 years running, but it's certainly not going anywhere. What do you think when you look at the stock? Yeah, I mean, right now it seems like there are some some bumps in the road for Coca-Cola. So um, you know, the only bright spot was was the fact that commodity costs weren't increasing as rapidly as they were last year. Um, and if you're looking for something to offset inflation, maybe that's a good takeaway from this: is that Coca-Cola has typically been able to, um, you know, has that pricing power to offset inflation for your portfolio. But like you said, just not a lot of upside from here. Just kind of a consistent dividend-paying stock. It buys back shares regularly and in large amounts. So um, I, I'm not. Looking to buy, but I'm not saying that it's just something that you should stay away from, per se. Well, and we'll see what the weather is like over the next three months. Uh, Johnson & Johnson, second quarter profit up big. Uh, maybe not a surprise, Dave, when you consider that uh, this same quarter a year ago was, uh, what's the word, horrible. Um, so, But still, higher sales, and um, it seems like the company has yet another quarter with no major screw-ups. Yeah, that's that's always a good thing. So I was looking. I was really quickly. I was looking at uh, at a one-year chart. A um, little surprised to see this, but uh, up thirty-two percent in a year. Uh, that's a pretty wow. big company to go up, be up thirty-two percent. Yeah, in a I was going to say. Um, and I think it. I think it's a testament to what what you're saying is the company seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, firing on all cylinders, if you will, as Ron Gross would say. Oh, I'm quoting Ron Gross. Uh, I know that's you, probably step up for me. I, I know that was not your intention. Um, uh, although, it, I guess the the blessing and the curse with a company like Johnson and Johnson is uh, it's it's so diverse. It's got all these different divisions, uh, and and many of them are the day-in and day-out household needs. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the weather is outside. <laughs> you, you know, you need... You're going to... You, I have a headache, whether it's sunny or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or raining. Yeah, if my, you know, if my finger is bleeding, I need a Band-Aid regardless of what the weather is outside. That's a beautiful business model right there. When you can't blame the weather. Exactly. That's a beautiful um, business model. But on the flip side, and we, have, we did see this for years with Johnson & Johnson, it seemed like every quarter, regardless of... How they did financially, part and parcel of the quarterly earnings was some sort of significant. Oh, and by the way, we're having a massive recall in our, you know, in this one division or some sort of significant one-off problem. And I don't want to jinx it, but it seems like this is maybe the third or possibly even the fourth quarter in a row. All kidding aside, I said no, no major screw-ups, but yep. it, they really are on a, a nice little run here. Yeah, then that's you know, I think. 
looking at thinking about how investors react to things like that, we've also seen a rise in the stock price. So uh, for a long time, very flat. There was always something, right? There was always, as you alluded to, there was always some little, oh, by the way. And investors don't really like those, oh, by the ways. Yeah. But when they don't hear them, they cheer. And that's why the stock's up. Yeah. Avoiding those kinds of hiccups for a large, diverse conglomerate is very tough. And you constantly hear that from big blue chips, uh, J&J, General Electric. Like, there's always going to be something that you're, you know, blaming the quarter on. So I was just going to say, I know GE is a company you follow closely, Isaac. How, how does How does a company that big with so many different divisions... How do they manage that? Because that almost seems like that would be your number one priority if you're the CEO of General Electric, of just getting strong leaders at your different divisions and and just saying, just look, just don't screw up. (laughs) Because it it does seem like with these huge multinational companies, as long as you're executing, then the bottom line almost – almost takes care of itself. Yeah, yeah, and and they're constantly making these bolt-on acquisitions, and you have to trust your managers to have the right instincts in each of these markets. Um, they recently bought, within their medical devices and diagnostics unit, one of the largest uh, units that's growing at 9.6%. You know, for a large company, as you were talking about, not not so easy to do, but they make the right acquisitions over and over, and it seems like yeah, they get a sense of what they do best, and then they just continue to bolt on the right companies that make sense, and so they're not stretching themselves too thin. Uh, Yahoo reports earnings after the bell today, so we will almost certainly talk about Yahoo on tomorrow's market foolery. And it's uh, a year, I think it's now one year that Marissa Mayer has been uh, in place in the CEO's office at Yahoo, and she is getting all the kudos in the world, and rightly rightly so when you consider the market cap of Yahoo is $10 billion more than it was a year ago when she stepped into the office. I feel like Alex Gorski over at Johnson & Johnson, he's having a, a pretty strong rookie season, too, as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think he's been there slightly longer. Uh, maybe it's just over a year. But it, it really, you know, again, he's one of those guys you don't really hear a whole lot about him. Um, but I guess if you're a shareholder and the stock's up 32% a year, maybe, you, you know, you don't even care all that much. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you're, sending, maybe you're sending him a very nice fruit basket uh, for, for the, at the holidays. Really? Is that I, what I should I, be doing? I, I, think, <laughs> I think there's. I think he's going to be getting plenty of those over the holiday season. Uh, you can email us. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Uh, and we heard uh, from all across the globe about this next story. We heard from uh, Tim Casby, a longtime listener in Russia, and Uncle Joe Mager in Sydney, Australia. Both those guys emailed uh, over the last couple of days and said, you have got to see this story in Business Week. And let me back up. Uh, a little bit of context here about Eddie Lampert, who I think we've talked about from time to time. For those who uh, may not know, a billionaire investor, head of ESL Investments. Uh, actually, Business Week did a profile on him back in 2004 asking, hey, is this guy the next Warren Buffett? Because he seems to be racking up those types of returns. Um, that was back in 2004. Now... But what have you done for lately, <laughs> quite, a Eddie? Tune. Uh, quite a different tune. Quite a different tune. In a wonderful story, I encourage uh, all of our dozens of listeners to check this out on the Business Week website. A uh, reporter by the name of Mina Kimes has written a story entitled, At Sears, Eddie Lampert's Warring Divisions Model Adds to the Troubles. Uh, Eddie Lampert uh, installed himself as CEO at Sears, and 
this is really an amazing story of, I guess, a guy heading one of the oldest retail brands in the public markets. But it also paints a picture of a guy who really doesn't like retail <laughs> and has basically, I mean, we were just talking about how does GE, how do Johnson Johnson deal with their different divisions? And this is a story about Lampert setting up a system where the 30 divisions at Sears Holdings are essentially competing with each other and not in a good way, in a way that gets compared to the Hunger Games where they're just, <laughs> they're just cutthroat trying to make their own numbers at the expense of the underlying business. Um, and I, you know, we, we just kicked this around a little bit this morning, but Isaac, what, you know, you, uh, when you glanced at the story, what, what leaped out at you here? I mean, it just, it seems like just the picture of dysfunction. Well, for, for someone who's, I mean, not me, but someone who works at Sears and they're just well versed in retail, it's gotta be an odd situation to, to be in the middle of this where, it sounds like Eddie Lampert just doesn't really enjoy the business that much or, or just doesn't necessarily have an affinity for it like he does for finance and investing. And, and it's hard to get in there and have a non-retail type person run a retail business, especially one a story to Sears. And, um, you know, it doesn't seem like it's creating a great culture for them. And I think you really need to have someone who no- knows the nuts and bolts of the business. And so when you make the comparison to Buffett, well, I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that insurance has a lot in common with finance and investing, whereas retail, it's just kind of, it's like you're running a basketball team and you want to go run a baseball team suddenly. You right. know, it's just not as easy as that. Well, and Dave, I guess if you want to be charitable, you could look at Lampert and say, hey, look, he's, he's trying something different. He's, this is a troubled retailer. He's got a bold vision. Right. But as we saw with Ron Johnson over at JCPenney, bold visions don't, don't always they don't end always well. worked out. No, um, I you know I think his vision, um, a- as I understood it, reading um, over the many years uh, and and being a fan of Eddie Lampert as an investor is is was the theme was capital allocation. We have mm-hmm. to get capital to the right places within the business. It just seems like if 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 you're worried about every single you know, dollar of capital being allocated in, you know, hyper, hyper competition for that, that single dollar, that seems to have gone very badly. Um, because I will say, as someone who has spent money with Sears in the past, especially in, on appliances and tools, I, I mean, I would never go back into that store now. Yeah. I, I mean, that's really, that's really sad. You know, we're, we're, we were talking about a retailing icon that's, that seems to be destroying itself from within, um, and you know we'll 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 see what happens. But it does seem like the hyper attention to uh, to capital, the right capital allocation is is that experiment is not going well. Well, and I think that for you know one, I think one of the takeaways maybe for investors here is that you can you can be an investor who just looks at the balance sheet who just looks at the numbers the market opportunity and all that sort of thing and say you know all that other stuff about culture that's fluff that doesn't matter and yet when you look at this just based on the culture that has been created at yeah. Sears that in and of itself seems like a reason to stay away from the stock no matter how cheap it's gotten well, look at let's let's go back to the Buffett comparison, right? He, is he the next Buffett? Um, you know, one of the things that Buffett always does, always does, is he lauds his managers, and he gives them, even though he has final say in how much money they get. Yep. Right. They they're always getting money, so he he has he has taken the time to you know buy a business, 
or, or uh, with with a good management team, or if you know, or a few times he's had to replace managers who haven't been up to snuff, if you will, and he seems to get that right all the time. That's a big that's a big difference of what's going on. How much how many how much turnover have we seen at Sears? Right, quite a bit. Um, here's maybe the. <laughs> I don't know how to put this. this. This to me was the most messed up part of the story. Was that was that uh, Lampert had an internal social network built for employees. That's what stood out to me. Too. And then he joined it. He joined the social network oh, under a man. pseudonym, and then started arguing with employees. And and to me, the most messed up part about that is the time factor. It's like, really? You had ESL Investments? You're the CEO of Sears? And you have the time to log on to the internal, your own version of Facebook under a pseudonym and just start arguing with your employees? What are you doing? Yeah, it, it seems like he tried to create transparency in the business and then decided to undermine his own initiative to do that. It's, it's really amazing. It, it, this, this, is a, this is an amazing story, uh, the, 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 the more that you read into these, the, these various things that are going on. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Uh, I love Twitter, and one of the reasons I love Twitter is because uh, stories like this will get popped up. If yes. you're following the right people, they will they will tweet <laughs> out stuff like this. Uh, and and Joe Mager emailed me directly about this story, but he also put it out on Twitter as well. All right, Dave Meyer, Isaac Pino, guys, thanks for being here. As yep. always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Matt Greer back behind the glass today. After yesterday, when I mentioned that Matt wasn't going to be behind the glass, uh, but our man Rick Engdahl called away to emergency duty up at the Fool offices in New York. So Matt helping us out today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.